elsewhereness in the boarding house from James Joyce. Isolated in three distinct sections, three characters run in the opposite direction of happiness. By Walter Bound, first published in Books Are Our Superpower. At the end of the short story from Dubliners, the last short story James Joyce devotes to adolescence, the slim girl of 19, Polly Mooney, hears her mother, the madam, call from downstairs. Polly, Polly. Yes, mama. Come down, dear. Mr. Doran wants to speak to you. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for. What had Polly been waiting for? To be summoned? To live her own life? To assent? To marry her conquest, the older Mr. Doran, a mere lodger? For her lover, Mr. Doran, to pay off the madam, as if Polly was a prostitute at the house of the rising sun, or to be cleaved in half? Poor Polly. Poor Mr. Doran. Poor Mrs. Mooney. So many characters from James Joyce's sixth story from Dubliners appears to have a meat cleaver to their throat. Who holds that cleaver? Sin? Society? Obligations? After all, Joyce has the madam deal with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat. Polly's mother runs a boarding house after her own bad marriage. She was a butcher's daughter who marries a butcher, but then he goes to the devil and approaches her with his own cleaver. She gets a priest to agree to a separation, there is no divorce in Ireland then, and she opens a boarding house with the proceeds of selling the butcher shop. The house is full of young men who call her the madam. She runs a tight ship. There are two children, Jack Mooney, a clerk, and Polly, who sings to the men in the drawing room, I'm a naughty girl, you needn't sham, you know what I am. James Joyce describes her with light, soft hair and a small, full mouth. Her eyes, which were gray with a shade of green through them, had a habit of glancing upwards when she spoke with anyone, which made her look like a little perverse Madonna. Joyce in his stories equates green eyes with exoticism and mystery, and that adjective described the mother of Jesus, perverse, is indeed troubling. Is the madam that naive as to believe that nothing will happen if she has Polly entertain the men? Joyce writes, as Polly was lively, the attention was to give her the run of the young men, because young men like to feel that there is a young woman not very far away. Polly, of course, flirted with the young men, but Mrs. Mooney, who was a shrewd judge, knew that the young men were only passing the time away. None of them meant business. Of course, Joyce uses the word shrewd ironically. Her idea of justice is the guillotine, right? That meat cleaver. After she suspects Polly may be more attentive than necessary to a young man, she sends her to typewriting class. The first part of the story largely involves the madam. Mrs. Mooney intervenes when she decides she has observed enough, but she takes out the cleaver of justice and righteousness. There has been little or any communication between mom and the daughter, but the mom asks frank questions and Polly gives frank answers largely dancing around the problem with illusions. Joyce writes of his mother's thoughts. Joyce writes of the mother's thoughts. She was sure she would win. To begin with, she had all the weight of social opinion on her side. She was an outraged mother. She had allowed him to live beneath her roof, assuming that he was a man of honor 
and he had simply abused her hospitality. He was 34 or 35 years of age, so that youth could not be pleaded as his excuse, nor could ignorance be his excuse since he was a man who had seen something of the world. He had simply taken advantage of Polly's youth and inexperience. That was evident. The question was, what reparation would he make? Mrs. Mooney knew there was only one answer to keep her daughter respectable, marriage. The second part of the story involves Mr. Moran. It is Sunday morning, of course, right? I love how Moran is so nervous about his conversation with the madam. He had made two attempts to shave, but his hand had been so unsteady that he had been obliged to desist. He can't even control his hands. He had been to confession the night prior. He had admitted to the affair, the priest drawing out every ridiculous detail of the affair. What could he do, run off or marry her? His reputation would be destroyed. His family would certainly disapprove of poor Polly, as her grammar was horrible, and she was vulgar. And did he really love her? Didn't she seduce him with those late night knocks at the door? As Joyce points out, Dublin is such a small city, everyone knows everyone else's business. Polly even says she will kill herself after Bob Moran asks, what shall I do? The end of the story follows poor Polly. Here we have this lonely girl. Who does she have in her corner? Her drunk of a father, her raving brother, Jack, shouting at Moran, her mother? Polly needs attention. She needs love. She needs a father figure in a way. And Mr. Duran is 34 or 35. She remembers in isolation upstairs. If the night was anyway cold or wet or windy, there was sure to be a little tumbler of punch ready for him. Perhaps they could be happy together. They used to go upstairs together on tiptoe, each with a candle, and on the third landing exchange reluctant good nights. They used to kiss. He remembered well her eyes, that seductive ring again, the touch of her hand, and his delirium. But delirium passes. Isn't that a clever word from Joyce, the ultimate wordsmith? Delirium for an orgasm? What a euphemism. And it does pass. Think about how many in history have suffered utter calamity and disgrace for such momentary delirium. Joyce describes her physical and mental state as well. Polly sat for a little time on the side of the bed crying. Then she dried her eyes and went over to the looking glass. She dipped the end of the towel in the water jug and refreshed her eyes with the cool water. She looked at herself in profile and readjusted a hairpin above her ear. Then she went back to the bed again and sat at the foot. She regarded the pillows for a long time and the sight of them awakened in her secret amiable memories. She rested the nape of her neck against the cool iron bed rail and fell into a reverie. There was no longer any perturbation visible on her face. Does the water replace her tears as a type of absolution, a cleansing of sin? She fixes her hair to look presentable and respectable, and then she regards the pillows, the scene of the delirium, and those amiable memories. The cool iron of the bed rail could be seen as a phallic symbol, but I could be reaching. But she does fall into a reverie. Another euphemism? Suddenly, her face was no longer worried. She waits patiently with no alarm. She hopes for a fine future. Does the reader expect such a fine future for poor Polly? 
especially based on the family history and that damn cleaver. Then she gets called. Polly, then she remembered what she'd been waiting for. But does she really want to marry him? So what do the critics say about the story? Michael Patrick Gillespie sees the boarding house as the weight of social convention, overwhelming the opportunity for choice, ensuring that every decision made by every character is a foregone conclusion from the opening lines to the end. In the end, Doran's ascent appears more of a recognition than a fait accompli than an actual choice. They are all equally victims and predators. Each character, according to Gillespie, plays the societal role as this having no free will. In the, in the end, one cannot understand the boarding house without remaining clearly attentive to the influence of social strictors and the consequent expectations placed upon the characters. Joyce's story carefully avoids the cliched, melodramatic view of lower middle class seduction. Instead, it highlights not the behavior of individuals, but the moral context of that behavior, the most active and powerful character in the story. Kenneth Brooks sees the exposition of the story as not only necessary, think family history and butchery and the meat cleaver, but also lively writing. He writes, we learn a good deal, not only from the facts related, but from the death dispatch from which they are delivered. The storyteller obviously knows Mrs. Mooney, though he is not particularly fond of her, and he gets quickly on through little more than a summary of earlier events to what he regards as the story worth his telling. Brooke calls it a love story of wrong turnings. I love how Fritz Sheen describes the story, elsewhereness. There is a synoptic exposition, and then the story splits into three distinct parts and two locations. Each of the characters is seen mainly in isolation. Separation is indeed a theme. Most of the running, then, is in the undesired direction. So the madam doesn't want to hit the heart, but the throat, where one's heart might encounter one's teeth. Only a butcher with determination and a cleaver could make this happen. I highly recommend listening while reading Joyce. Uh, Chris O'Dodd on Audible does a marvelous job bringing Dublin from 1914 alive for us here in 2022 and beyond. I've written 40 essays for Books Are Our Superpowers, and seven of them are about James Joyce. Uh, check out uh, some of them. Thanks for listening. Uh, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.